Welcome to Radio Tambua, an outreach of ACFA, the Africa Center for Apologetics Research. ACFA equips God's people for the defense of the faith, biblical discernment, and cult evangelism. Let's begin today's message. This training has at least three goals. Number one, as we have said, that this training is about remembering what happened in Kanungu, learning from it and preventing future tragedies. So we want to have at least three angles through which we look through uh, this theme. Number one is what we call a look in the past. We want to look back in the past and find out or ask ourselves what really happened in Kanungu and what can we do to ensure that what happened does not happen again. A look in the past, what happened in Kanungu, and how can we understand what happened so that we can see the impact and effects it has had on the Ugandan church. Number two is to have a look at the present, to seek to understand the strength and the weaknesses of the Ugandan church and how the church in Uganda is responding to the threats and false teachings in our time. It is very easy for us to look back and condemn what happened 20 years ago, when we have not learned anything that is guiding our churches today. So when we look at our churches today, how do they look like? Have they learned any lessons from what happened in Kanungu? Number three is to have a look into the future, to consider what steps Christian leaders and lay people can take in Uganda to empower believers so that they can easily identify cults and false teachers, so that they can easily understand them, and so that they can easily evangelize them. What steps is the church in Uganda taking today? And by the church in Uganda, I mean all the Christian evangelical churches in Uganda put together. What are we as pastors and our churches doing to ensure that our members are more knowledgeable about biblical Christianity? They can easily tell the difference between Christianity and other groups or teachings that look like Christian but actually are not. And what is the church doing to ensure that what happened may never happen again? We keep talking about Kanungu, but we need also to be reminded as speakers that we are in West Nile. And it's a very long distance from here to Kanungu in southwestern Uganda where the events took place. We don't want to take it for granted. Some of you might not even have heard about what happened. Or maybe you did, but the details are scanty, and even as you sit here, you are wondering, what are these guys talking about? Kanungu is a district in southwestern Uganda. It borders the district of Kabale, where I come from, the district of Rukunjiri, and I think not far from Kasese, where Nehemiah comes from. So it was in the year 2000. And precisely on March 17th, which is not very far from today, on March 17th, it will be 21 years since the Kanungu cult tragedy took place. 
On March 17, a group that was known as the Movement for the Restoration of the Ten Commandments of God burnt people in a church. About 500 people lost their lives in the church fire. And the days that followed investigations by government and other organizations soon revealed that there are so many people who had been killed before in different ways. Some by strangling, others by poison, others probably by sicknesses. We don't know exactly what happened, but it was soon revealed that another close to 500 people had already died before the fire bringing the total number of the dead to about a thousand people. What happened that these people died? This was a group that was a breakaway from the Roman Catholic Church. Among the top leadership were some ex-Roman Catholic fathers who believed that they were starting a movement, number one, that sought to restore the Ten Commandments of God at a time when they felt the church was compromising on obeying these commandments, but also a group which believed that the end of the world was going to come in the year 2000, so they were preparing people for the end of the world, at least according to the revelations they claimed to have received from the Virgin Mary. So according to their version, the Virgin Mary had revealed himself to some of the leaders and told them that the world was going to end in the year 2000. And so they prepared people for the end of the world by making them to sell their belongings and everything they had, by gathering them together into a community in Kanungu district where they lived. They were always putting on uniforms of different colors. They were living together, even though separated men and women in different corners. They lived by strict rules. They were certain, there are certain rules they were set to obey. And uh, anyone who did not obey these rules, as a matter of fact, was punished. And on March 17th, the year 2000, they were locked in a church where they believed that the Virgin Mary was going to come and take them to heaven. And instead of the Virgin Mary coming, the fire did, and over 500 perished. I should quickly remind you that most of these people, as research shows, were not Muslims. Most of these people were not non-believers. They were Christians from different congregations, Anglican, the Roman Catholic Church, and maybe even some single autonomous denominations, believers who really wanted to go to heaven, Christians who very much believed the prophecies that were given by the leadership, who sincerely and ignorantly perished in the fire. And at this moment I wonder, or probably I should ask a question to you. Is it possible that one can be a Christian and yet be deceived? Is it possible that you can be sincere in your beliefs and yet be misled? Sincerity is not enough. If it is not established or founded in truth, there will be consequences for the deception you have believed. So we are talking about a case of deception of believers who should have known biblical truth but did not, were deceived by men and women who claimed to be speaking with God and knew biblical truth but actually did not, 
and the end results were what we call today the Kanungu cult tragedy. 21 years down the road, and the effects or the impact of this cultic group are still severely felt by Uganda and the world at large. We have so many orphans who lost their parents in this fire. We have so many parents who lost their children in this fire. And because of a lie, so many people's lives will never be the same again because what happened altered their lives once for all. Is it possible that you and I could be the next victims? Questions like these demand attention and deserve answers, especially as we talk about through this group and several other cults today. After the Kanungu incident, after March 17th, the Human Rights Commission conducted a report in which they highlighted several factors that they believed that defined the movement or factors that led to the exploitation and destruction of the group's members. And I want to read for you a few of them here. One of the things that this group did, they separated the families, including children, and took them to different camps in a new environment where they would not easily socialize, divide and rule. Number two, they built fences around their camp that were not easy to see through in order to prevent those outside from seeing what was happening inside. So they divided themselves from the rest of the community that the community never knew what was always happening inside their walls. So even when they burnt into a fire, it took a long time for the community in Kanungu to actually understand what is going on or even to come to their rescue. In this movement, Producing children or having sex among followers was strictly forbidden. So if you came in with your wife, your wife went to leave this side, you went to leave this side, and you were not supposed to meet. After all, you had come together to prepare for heaven, not to enjoy sex. They relied on deception through selective Bible readings. The Bible was usually read, but in most cases out of context. One thing you need to understand as we discuss the subject of cults and false teachers is that these groups usually are not against the Bible. These groups usually don't hate God or Jesus, by the way. When we talk about false teachers, we are not talking about people who go around saying, I hate Jesus, in fact, me, I would like to go to hell. I love hell better than heaven. That's not what we are talking about. What makes these false teachers even more devious and dangerous is that they claim to uphold Christianity on one hand, but on the other hand, secretly, indirectly distort what Christianity is saying. These people were reading the Bible. If you heard their name very well, they were called the Movement for the Restoration of the Ten Commandments. Now, who would refuse to join a movement that is trying to restore the Ten Commandments? Don't we all want to obey the commandments of God? So naturally, by looking at the name of the group, you would feel encouraged to join them because the name was very positive and biblical and sounded godly, in fact. In fact, more godly than the Roman Catholic Church of the day where they were running away from. So we're not talking about people who were non-Christian. No, they were Christian, they were biblical, but they twisted and distorted the Bible's teaching. Apart from the leaders, other members of the cult were not allowed to talk. 
There were several times these people were seen in the community in Kanungu going around, going to the gardens to dig, fetching water, but they would not talk to anyone because the leadership believed that through talking people sin. So to avoid sinning, you were supposed to keep quiet and they were using sign language. If you were caught talking, you would be punished and given some canes. So they used signs to communicate to themselves, amongst themselves and the other cult leaders. It should also be noted that these people had a tight day's schedule that kept the followers extremely busy so that there was almost no time to discuss, not even in signs. One of the signs of a dangerous group is that it will try to overwork its people and leave no room for thinking or evaluation. If you are busy all the time, program after program after program, and you wake up at, at 5 in the morning, and you are sleeping at 1 a.m. every day, by Friday you are so tired that when you fall on the bed, you just start snoring. No time to think through what happened during the day, whether it was right or wrong. So they kept them so busy that was, there was no time for reflection or for evaluation of what is going on. These people tried to keep within the law and in fact were very friendly with the political leaders in the region. They were very generous to the community around them. Therefore, you would not easily suspect that anything wrong was happening, especially within inside their camp. They usually traveled at night and they could not easily be noticed even by the neighbors. They did not own their own vehicles. They usually hired vehicles to travel, and therefore it was not easy to identify. You see, if a group has a car and it has their logo on it, when you see the car, you can easily say they have gone that side. But if they are using public transport, they move as individuals, you cannot look at a person and say, mm, this person looks like he's coming from the other cult. It was not easy to identify who was who. They commanded their followers to sell all their property and bring all the proceeds to the cult leaders. And sometimes they even burnt this property, claiming that the Virgin Mary was annoyed with the owners. So again, remember, the leaders are receiving revelation from God on what is right and what is not, and they are communicating to the members. So if they come and say, last night the Virgin Mary said, uh, your car has some demons, so we are going to burn it, you could not question, you could not object, your only option was to obey. So they created a properless and helpless society of followers who became totally dependent on the cult and its leadership. And even though they would have wanted to leave, there was nothing to go back to which is what kept them in the group. Because if all your property has been given to the group, you've sold your everything and brought it, tomorrow if you decide to leave, where do you go? So you have no option but to stay around. Most of the members were severely deprived of sleep. They were not eating enough. They were always fasting most of the time. Those who erred were severely punished. Separation from family made it even difficult for them to reason together. And at the end of the day, when the end came, no one saw it. No one was prepared for it. And that is how over 500 people uh, died in this kind of manner. Now, 21 years later, there are so many questions that the church in Uganda still needs to answer. 
How is it that a group like this gathers thousands of people, enslaves them in such a manner, eventually kills them, and goes undetected? But number two, what happened to the leaders? Because up to now, no one is sure whether the leaders burnt in the fire or whether they had escaped days before. And therefore we keep wondering, what happened to these guys and will they ever come back? Is it possible that Kanungu experience can happen again today? When we look at our Ugandan religious atmosphere, our churches and the nature of our church members, most of whom still do not know their Bibles, cannot tell their left from their right, is it possible that another experience that is like Kanungu can happen again? What has the church and other stakeholders like government and civil society organizations done to ensure that this does not happen again? Why is the church now more prepared to detect and defend the Christian faith against groups like Kanungu after 20 years down the road? When we look at our church today, can we say that we are much more safer than we were 20 years ago? Or is it possible that another Kanungu can happen? In what ways can the church in Uganda be more preventive of such a repeat? And as we discuss these things, I am in fact very much reminded, before we came here we were in the district of Kagadi and Chibare, and we were conducting trainings in the diocese of Bonyorochitara after the recent death of another man called Owobosabo Zibisaka, I want to believe that most of you have heard about him. Mm -hmm. A man who claimed or at least believed that he is God. A man who commands a following of over 5 million Ugandans today. A man who has different altars and worship centers all over the country to the tune of more than 3,000, both in churches, in villages, and at most of the prestigious universities in the country today. Now, it makes you wonder. You would think that after Kanungu, Ugandan Christians became wiser and much more vigilant about their Christian faith. But 20 years down the road, as we think about Kanungu, there are people who are following a man, and they believe that that man is God. Even after he has died, his members are still claiming that he is not dead because God cannot die. Some claim that he is visiting them in visions and dreams, Others have told us that they believe 40 days after his death he is going to rise again from the dead. Some are claiming that he is still healing their sicknesses. A mere man, he has died of COVID. They have seen that he himself could not even heal himself. But for some reason they continue to believe that he is God. So it makes you wonder, are we any safer than we were 20 years ago? Can Kanungu happen in Uganda and maybe even happen at a much wider and larger scale than what happened 20 years ago? And as a pastor, does this burden you to see that the people you pastor continue to be like sheep without a shepherd, to believe without thinking and to remain vulnerable to anybody who claims that God is speaking? What are you going to do as a pastor? How are you going to warn and help your members to understand the truth and differentiate it from teachings that sound and look like truth but actually are not? Those questions, my friends, deserve answers. But as we go along, let's also look at what does it really mean 
for a, a country like Uganda not only to believe in a cult but to have so many religious groups coming up day in and out that continue to deceive the unsuspecting. From the theological or let me say sociological point of view, by theology I mean what we believe, by sociology I mean how we behave. So from the belief angle and the behavior angle, let's see some of the signs of a cult or a false religious groups. And as we look at these characteristics, I want you to be asking yourself or looking back at your church, do you see some of these characteristics creeping up in some of your churches? Is it possible that when we are done with this training, you might actually realize that you could be cultic and make a commitment to change? Because that is equally possible. It is very easy for us to gather here and say, those cults, those churches. And then when we start to discuss their characteristics, you are like, wait a minute. Mm, wait a minute. Are you saying my pastor is also, no way. This can't be true. Trust me, it is very possible. So, some of the characteristics that we want to look at is that number one, is that cults are not always easy to detect. You remember when before I was saying that many times when we think about cults or false teachers, we tend to think that they are obvious, they go around introducing themselves as devil worshippers. No, if that was the case, then nobody would join them because who wants to join a devil worshipper when it is very clear he is? But then when they come, they do not come in that manner. In Matthew chapter 7 verse 15, Jesus warns his followers and he says, Watch out for false prophets, for they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. On the outside they look like harmless, gentle, innocent sheep. But on the inside they are wolves, and of course wolves when they come in a community they have one goal, to devour, to destroy, to kill, to eat something. Second Peter tells us, chapter 2, that the false teachers will come in among you, and he says that they secretly introduce destructive teachings, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. The key word in that statement is secretly. They secretly introduce. And when somebody is doing something secretly, he has one intention, that you do not know what he is trying to do. And because they are not easy to detect, there are so many people who are innocently or ignorantly involved in a cultic church or group, and they are not even aware. These people who died in the Kanungu fire, I believe that they were not aware that they were going to be destroyed. Most of them were sincere and innocent. They thought they were doing the right thing. They thought by their behavior and practice they were going to go to heaven faster than everyone else. But their sincerity did not save them. We need to know that cults do not always come in an obvious way. They are not easy to detect, which is why we need biblical discernment. Number two, most cultic groups will usually contradict sound biblical teaching. They will teach a mix of truth with error. Please notice that they will not deny the truth necessarily. But they teach the truth and then mix in with error. So before you know it, what began as biblical and true 
ends up as the pastor's personal teaching or opinions. They might mention the same Christian words, but they will give them different meanings. They might say they believe in God, except their God in this case might be a human being. They might say they believe in Jesus, but he might be the Jesus of the Mormon church, who was the elder brother of Lucifer and several other teachings about him. They might be like Jehovah's Witnesses who say they believe in Jesus, except their Jesus is not God. He was a perfect human being like you and me. So same words, same Christian terminology, but using a different dictionary. They twist the scriptures to draw away disciples after them. And therefore, we must always remember that reading scripture is not enough. How one interprets it equally matters. One of the people I know who is famous for scripture quotation is a man known as Apostle Grace of Fanero Ministries. I am sure most of you have heard about Fanero. That guy can quote a hundred scriptures without breathing in a space of like five minutes. He will have quoted a hundred scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. What I never understand is what is the purpose of quoting all those scriptures? Are you quoting them to build a case of what you are trying to teach? Are you trying to inform the people who are listening to you that you are very knowledgeable and you are a walking Bible? What is the whole idea? But if you listen to him carefully, what basically he is doing is to overwhelm the people listening to him. Number one, he makes them feel like, wow, this guy has read his Bible. He knows it from one corner to another. Therefore, whatever he tells us must be true. So by the time he mentions a different teaching, which is not even in the Bible, all the people's discernment has been lowered down. They are already convinced that he knows what he's talking about. But do you know that somebody can say the Bible says, and then what he quotes actually is not even found in the Bible? Yeah. Have you heard of people who say the Bible says God helps those who help themselves? Do you know that that verse is actually not in the Bible? So because somebody says the Bible says, does not mean everything else he's going to say is actually in the Bible. Somebody could quote a verse and just stop halfway and then give it an interpretation that has nothing to do with the Bible. I like always to tell this story or rather to give this illustration of a pastor I had who quoted John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only. He put the Bible down. <laughs> then he says, how did God love the world? Everyone said, oh, he gave his only. Then he called the ushers to bring the baskets and said, okay, now we are going to demonstrate our love for God by giving our only. Now the question is, how much is only? Is it 1,000 only? Is it 1 million only? Is it one plot of land only? How much? And if you think for a moment, is John chapter 3 really about giving your only? Did he read the Bible? Yes. Is he interpreting the verse well? No. Is he applying it right? No. Now for you ladies, imagine a pastor comes up, he reads this verse for you which says, freely you have received, freely give. And then he says, would you like to meet me today at around 3 p.m. in the hotel across the road there? 
Yeah, you have to give freely because freely you have received. Is he quoting the Bible? Yes. Is the Bible saying what he says it is saying? No. So quoting the Bible is not enough. Reading a Bible passage is not enough. How it is interpreted and applied equally matters. But another point we can make is that cults usually emphasize what we call extra-biblical revelations to invent new doctrines and control their members. And we see the same happening uh, that, that happened in this group of Kanungu, the movement for the restoration of the Ten Commandments of God, that the whole movement was built on revelations from the Virgin. Please note, not from reading the Bible. No, from revelations of the what? Of the Virgin Mary. They claimed the Virgin Mary told them how to behave. The Virgin Mary told them what to believe. The Virgin Mary showed them how to punish those who disobeyed the rules. The Virgin Mary eventually was coming to pick them in the year 2000. Most of these cultic groups will, instead of making the Bible central to their teaching, will replace it with visions, with dreams, with revelations, with prophecies. Now the problem with these things is that they are always subjective. The person telling you about them is the only one who knows about them, is the only one who receives them. How can we test such dreams and visions? If someone comes and says, God spoke to me, who are you to doubt that God didn't speak? Were you there? So they are not easy to judge. And you will notice that almost every cultic group, by the way, began by claiming a revelation. The Mormon church began when Joseph Smith in the 1800s claimed that he had received a vision and God had told him that all other churches were wrong. So he was supposed to start the Mormon church, which was to be the only true church of God that was going to restore the truth that was missing in, in, in Christianity. He claimed that the Bible had faults, so God had told him to write the book of Mormon, which was supposed to replace or to bring back the truth that had been taken out of the Bible. Almost every cultic group you know began when the leaders claimed God gave them a revelation or God gave them a prophecy. When people leave the Bible, which can easily be tested and verified, and they build their theology and church on revelations and prophecies that cannot be tested and verified. That is already a danger signal that you are headed in trouble and most likely in eternal destruction. We saw that in Kanungu, they received daily messages apparently from the Virgin Mary. They claimed that God was revealing prophecies and God was telling them what to do, how to do it, where to do it. But eventually we know that what they were claiming was coming from the Virgin Mary was not and was not even biblical at all. But another point also, we know that in most cases, cultists will be motivated by greed and selfish gain. That when you listen to their teachings very carefully, they are not centered on God, they are centered on the man of God. In all that this man is doing, he's making himself powerful, he's making himself more popular, sometimes even more popular than God. A lot of what you hear 
is what the man of God is doing and not what necessarily God is doing. That most of these people, rather than promoting God, they promote themselves. Instead of Jesus being the mediator between God and men, eventually the pastor replaces Jesus and now he is the one through whom you must come in order to reach God. God cannot touch you unless pastor so and so prays for you. And so today we have crowds of people moving from one corner of the country to another. Some of them even camping at the church for months and months because there is only one man who can touch them and they will be well. In Kampala we have a man who is called Pastor Tom. He leads a fellowship called Mutundo Christian Fellowship. Today if you go there you will find hundreds of people camping at his church. Some have brought their mattresses and saucepans and they are cooking and basically living there. If you go in the tax park today, there is a stage for Tom where taxis carry people day in and day out to go to that Christian fellowship. Why? Because they believe there is only one man who can pray for them and miracles will happen or their prayers will be answered. What has Tom done? He has replaced Jesus. Now instead of people coming to Jesus, they come to Pastor Tom. If Pastor Tom is not around, it means miracles cannot do what? Cannot happen. So now for people to access God, they must come through who? Through Pastor Tom. But are you aware that First Timothy chapter 2 verse 5 says that for there is one God and one mediator between men and God, the man who? The man Jesus Christ. So when people begin to trust in a pastor or in a prophet to help them access God, they have already missed it. They have already started worshipping a man instead of God. They are not any different from the people in Kanungu who believed that they could worship God through the Virgin Mary. And we saw what their end looks like. Most of these false teachers are greedy. At the end of the day, they are really in need for the money. Second, Peter says that for in their greed, they exploit you with stories that they have made up. Stories which come in the form of dreams, in the form of visions, in the form of the Lord showed me, the Lord is saying. Now, please, I want you to understand. I am not trying to say that every pastor who receives a revelation or a vision or a dream is necessarily a cultist. But what I am saying, not everyone who claims to be hearing from God is actually hearing from God. And that is why we must not believe because somebody said God said. But we must test everything they are saying to be sure that it is actually from God. Because God will not contradict himself. And you see, I like to say, in fact, for me, I believe that today we should not believe even in the presence of prophets today. And this is my argument. Any faithful prophet will say what God has already said because God does not contradict himself. And God has already spoken to us through the Bible. So if God has already told us what we need to know for salvation and to go to heaven, why do you need another prophet to repeat it when it is already in your Bible? You don't need a prophet. And if he is speaking something different from what God has already said, then he is a false prophet and we don't need false prophets. Are you hearing my argument here? If he speaks different from the Bible, he's a false prophet, we don't need him. If he speaks what is already in the Bible, we already have it, we don't need him. 
So either way, when you think about it, what you really need is to faithfully go into the word of God. Not another man to tell you. If he is explaining and interpreting what the Bible has already said, he's a preacher. Isn't that what preachers do? Isn't our job to open the Bibles and explain what God has said to the people God has put under our care? So do you need another prophet beyond the preacher who is already interpreting the Bible? No, you don't. And if you choose to look for one, soon or later he's going to be telling you his personal opinion is claiming God has spoken. But God already spoke. That's why we have the scriptures. Tell me if there is anything new you want to know that the Bible has not already addressed. Why do you think we don't have anybody writing other books to put in the Bible? Because there is nothing you are going to write that the Bible has not already pronounced itself on. Our God is a wise God. He has given us everything we need for life and the hereafter. And anybody claiming to have something new certainly is not speaking from God. Because we don't need something new. We already have everything we need. So most cases, they are using these dreams and prophecies to manipulate you, but at the end of the day, they are looking for money. False teachers also cause divisions. They will try to convince their flock that sound teaching causes division, but we know that this is a lie. In fact, it is false teaching that usually causes division. It is false teaching that is usually trying to distort the truth to take away disciples after them. It is people claiming that they received something new that God had forgotten to say, that eventually break the fellowship of the church and take away members from themselves, the, the, the church. One ministry in the U.S. called the Watchman Ministries has uh, made a summary of how you can easily describe cults, and they have put them in what we call mathematics science. So they have said, that cults add to the Bible or to the scriptures, that cults subtract from Jesus, that cults multiply the requirements of salvation, and cults divide the commitment of the members. Very easy to understand. Good, nice mathematical expression. If you are a teacher here, you should even be clapping for me because I have made matters easier for you. <laughs> eh? Addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. How do they add to the scriptures? One, they may say, God gave me a message which is not in the Bible. A revelation, a prophecy, a prediction, a vision, name it. But some other people will say, we believe in the Bible, but the Bible is not enough. So we will add, and they might add, a prophecy or a revelation. They might add another book that their pastor has written. They might add another teaching, maybe a DVD from the pastor. One of the groups that has added, for instance, is the Mormon Church. The Mormon Church believes in the Bible, usually the King James Bible. But they also have another Bible called the Book of Mormon. And if you look on the top cover, it is written on another testament of Jesus Christ. So according to them, there is the Old Testament, the New Testament, and another testament. They believe that the Bible has been corrupted and some important teachings have been removed by people over history. So the Book of Mormon contains the final truth 
that is supposed to clarify where the Bible has missing teachings. In other words, what they are saying is that when you are in confusion about the teaching of the Bible, read the book of Mormon. Now, another group that has added on top of the Bible is the Watchtower Society, or the Jehovah Witnesses. I want to believe you have them here with their kingdom halls. What they have done is that they have produced their own Bible, the New World Translation, which distorts several Bible passages that talk about Jesus being God. And they have also added the Watchtower magazine. So worldwide, every Jehovah Witness reads the Watchtower and Awake magazines, which are written by the worldwide leadership of the organization. And they claim that the worldwide leadership of organization is inspired. So whatever they write, you should take it as God's word. And in every kingdom, every time they meet, they study the same thing worldwide, which is the mind and the opinions of the leadership. Now, they will call you and claim you are supposed to come for Bible study. But when you come, what they are really studying is not the Bible. They are studying the magazine and then using some selected Bible passages to support what the leadership has already written in the magazines. Clearly, the Bible is not central. It is the Bible plus. And there are several other groups. But how do they subtract from Jesus? Some will say they believe in Jesus, but they will either deny that he was human, or they will deny that he was God. A case in point are the Jehovah Witnesses who would say he was a perfect man, he was even anointed, but he was not God. He was a God smurgy. The Mormons will say, yes, he was God, but um, not really the God capital G. In fact, even we ourselves are God like him. If we obey and live faithfully and follow all the teachings of the Mormon church, one day we will be gods like Jesus, we will have heavenly wives, we will create our own universes, and we will rule them. The Jesus in the Mormon church, as I told you earlier, he is the spirit elder brother of Lucifer. And you know who Lucifer is? Satan. Is that the Jesus of the Bible? No. They have already subtracted or stripped him from his honors as God and given him other distorted identities. But other cultic groups will multiply the requirements of salvation. While the Bible tells us that salvation is by grace only, they will have grace plus. Yes, we are saved by grace, but... We need to do the following in order to be saved fully. So they will add some rules, they will add some rituals, they will add some traditions, they, lots of things. There are even some Pentecostal groups today that, for instance, believe that if you do not speak in tongues, you will not go to heaven. Today there are people who will believe that unless you are baptized by immersion, you will not go to heaven. So what are they saying? Grace is not enough. Grace is not enough. And anything you add on top of the grace of God, no matter how nice it sounds, no matter how genuine, as long as you add to the finished work of Jesus, you have insulted his death and resurrection. You're saying Jesus is not enough. And I don't know any greater insult than that. You are saying God who gave his only begotten son for your salvation was wrong because what he gave was not good enough. The most cultists will add on, on the grace. 
But we've already noted finally that there are cultists that will divide the commitment or the loyalty of the members. Members, instead of coming to God through Jesus, they begin trying to come to God through the pastor. The pastor has replaced the, 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 the Jesus, the mediator. So now it's, you either come through me or you will never arrive in heaven. Addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. So let's try to bring this to a close. What can the church do today? The church now more than ever before must be vigilant to protect the church of God that he purchased with his own blood as we find in Acts chapter 20 verse 28. The church is called to equip its members to develop biblical discernment in the face of continuing falsehoods that are taking different shapes and coming in in different packages. The church must provide tools to its members to confidently understand and defend their faith from the spiritual counterfeits that almost look genuine, but in most cases are deceiving the unsuspecting. The church must be preventive in its approach to cults and false teachings by discipling its members to understand the Christian faith and to have reasons for what they believe. When God's people don't know what they believe and why they believe it, they will believe anything that anybody who claims to be a man of God will say. But when they know the truth, they can easily tell the difference when they hear somebody who is denying it, somebody who is doubting it, somebody who is distorting it. Kanungu Karut tragedy has left a huge mark on the church, particularly in Uganda today. It has revealed our shallowness in the Christian faith. It has reminded us of our need to ground believers in the faith that they have come to believe. It is a constant reminder that we are not safe yet unless we have preventive measures. Such, thing, such a thing will happen again and maybe with even more destructive effects than before. As we look back 20 years down the road, it is very easy for us to look back with arrogant pride to critique and despise the people who died in the fire and forget that we ourselves are still vulnerable and we need to do something urgently. So, as we walk through the training for the day, I want to keep reminding you, not just that what happened in Kanungu was wrong and unbiblical, but that it can happen again. In many respects, it is happening in some of our churches and denominations, and now more than ever before. As church leaders, we must rethink our strategy. We must rethink what we are teaching our members in order to avoid the repeat of what happened in Kanungu and to build a church that is solid in its teachings, a church that is sacred in its lifestyle, a church whose goal and service is to bring honor to God. To learn more about the Africa Center for Apologetics Research, visit us at africanapologetics.org.